who are you? That can sometimes be a difficult question to answer. Okay, sometimes we, we just give our simple answer, right? Who are you? I am Tony. All right? Uh, sometimes, though, we, we like to label people, don't we? Uh, we have labels in our back of our minds. We have labels that society uses, and we like to put uh, people in different categories based on these labels. Who are you? I'm an extrovert. Actually, I'm not. My wife's an extrovert. I'm an introvert. But you wouldn't know that, would you? Sometimes we don't even know what those labels mean, do we? We just use them because everybody else uses them. Oh, yeah, you're an extrovert. I'm an extrovert. All right? Sometimes we don't even have a clue what that means. Maybe sometimes we label ourselves based on our job. I'm a factory worker. I'm a minister. I'm a teacher. I'm a police officer. Why do we use these labels? They're they're nice at times because it lets us be able to categorize people and where they're at. But sometimes they kind of we use them to separate ourselves. Oh, you're that person. Well, I won't really get along with you then. And so this this question of who you are, I think, is a very important question. I think it's a question that Paul tries to answer in the book of Galatians. Uh, especially in chapter 3 at the end. And so that's where we're going to be at today. Uh, If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up to Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse uh, 19, I think is where we're going to start. Uh, we're, We're looking at this argument that Paul is making throughout the book of Galatians. And and we left off at the end of chapter 2 where he kind of uh, made the point uh, that the law was no longer required for Christians to follow because the law doesn't make someone right in the eyes of God. Uh, Or we could say it this way, man-made requirements are not necessary to be entered into the family of God nor to remain in the family of God. And so if these man-made requirements do not cause us to be in the family of God, why would we try to follow them still? Those are good questions, and Paul kind of leaves it there. We're going to skip the first 18 verses of chapter 3, but I think they are important to understand in order to interpret what we're going to actually read. Uh, The main argument in those 18 verses is Paul talking about Abraham. Uh, See, the law came well after Abraham had been dead, and so he goes before the law historically to make his point that faith is what's required, not following a set of rules. You know, we like rules, don't we? We like checklists. We like to know if we're on the straight and narrow based on, on how are we living. Yes, I'm doing this. Yes, I'm doing this. Yes, I'm doing this. But that is not what it takes to be a part of the family of God. And so Paul talks about Abraham, and and Abraham was a pretty important figure, okay? Uh, In the Jewish religion, in the world, in their society, he was the guy. He was the guy that started it all. He was the guy that had true fellowship with God for the first time. He was the guy that God came to in the midst of a pagan society and said, Hey, Abe, I want you to leave everything. And Abraham said, Okay. And he he left his family, he left his friends, and he said, I'm going to go. And God said, Just keep walking. I'll tell you when to stop. And I don't know about you, that I think that's great faith because I don't know that I could do that. All right, but Abe does this and he goes off and, and he follows God and, and, and we're told that God um, 
justified him. God made him right, considered him to be okay because of his faith. Now, there's two things that Paul points out in particular about Abraham's life. The first comes uh, from Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 to 3. They're going to be on the screen real quick. It says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Uh, This first uh, passage is called the Abrahamic blessing. It's where God's talking to Abraham, and he's promising Abraham that he was going to bless the world through him. And this is important. This is significant. This is something that, that the Jews were excited because they thought that they were the blessing. Right, they were the thing that all the world just needed more of them, sort of, kind of, except that they separated themselves. Right, but they thought that they were good. And to some extent, they understood this to be salvation. We're going to be saved because we're the children of Abraham. The term, the children of Abraham, it's a pretty important term. It's going to be significant in what we're going to read today. It's, it's this term that they understood to mean uh, those who got saved. And for the Israelites to be a child of Abraham, you were talking about lineage. Am, can I be a descendant of Abraham? Can I trace my lineage back to Abraham? And if that's the case, then I am going to be saved. It doesn't matter who I am or what I've done. What matters is who I've been born. And so for throughout, for many years, this is what they thought and this is what they talked about. But Paul argues, no, this blessing, it was meant for one person. And the reason he argues this is because in in verse 7 of this chapter of Genesis 12, he says this, the Lord comes to Abraham again. He says, to your offspring, I will give you this land. Unfortunately, in English, every translation that I read said offspring, but in the Hebrew, the word is seed, and the word is singular, just one. And so the promise that God had given Abraham, it wasn't meant for every one of his offspring from then on out. It was meant for one offspring. And this promise of blessing, this promise of salvation, this promise of of getting into heaven and being with God and having communion with God, it was designed for one person. And Paul argues in verses 1 through 18 of chapter 3 that that one person is Jesus. That Jesus is the one that God was talking about when he said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless the world through you, that all of these promises that Abraham was given, it was meant with the intention of knowing that Jesus would one day come. And so this understanding that to truly be saved, it's no longer a matter of are you, what's your status with Abraham? Are you a, in line with Abraham lineage-wide, physically? But now it's a matter of where is your status with Jesus? And so from there, we, we kind of get into Paul's argument that we're going to read today. And so uh, starting in verse 19, uh, we read this. Why then was the law given at all? You know, this is, this is the question. If the promise was given to Abraham and then the law came later, why did the law even have to be 
And so Paul answers that. He says, it was added because of transgressions, because of sin, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. See, the the law, uh, while the promise had been given to Abraham that they would be a blessing, that salvation would come to him, just because Abraham had that, it didn't mean that everybody else did. In fact, no one else had it. Abraham was the only one uh, that truly had this promise and knew what it was. And so the law is given because everyone else is sinning. While Abraham had faith, the rest of humanity continued to follow their own ideas of what was right and what was wrong. And while, yes, they had a under, general understanding based on creation of what was right and what was wrong, they chose to live however they wanted to live because they didn't know the way that God wanted them to live. Think of it this way. Uh, when I went to work for Walmart, I could have easily gone into the warehouse and kind of watched to see how to work, right? I could have watched everybody else as they were picking their things and putting it on their pallets and, and kind of gotten a general expectation of what the company wanted me to do. They wanted me to go to these areas. They wanted me to put things on my pallet. They wanted me to move to the next area and just kind of keep on going. Uh, but I also would have probably picked up a lot of bad habits, right? All right because while the uh, company really didn't want us to stand on pallets to reach the really high stuff because we're short, all right, the employees did. It was against the rules, but everyone did it. All right? They didn't really want us to use our cell phones while we were on the warehouse because there's a lot of machinery and you don't want to get hit and someone die, right? Uh, it's a very good rule, but yet I saw a lot of cell phones out on the warehouse floor. Uh, they didn't want us to stack our pallets too high because then it wouldn't go th- into the, the, the tractor trailers, okay? Like if you got it too high, it would hit the top and everything would fall off. So they didn't want us to stack too high, but yet every once in a while, that one guy would get really, really close. And so yes, I could have watched and seen what everybody else was doing, but I also wouldn't have known exactly what Walmart wanted me to do until I went to training. And that's kind of how the law works, right? We can look at creation and we can kind of see the things that God says is right and wrong. There's a lot of reasons why different governments who don't know God have kind of the same laws, right? Don't murder, right? Don't do things that are going to hurt other people, right? They have a lot of these same laws. Why? Because we know in general right and wrong, but do we know specifically what God wants us to do? And that's where the law comes in, is even though Abraham knew everything, knew that there was a God and knew uh, that what he said was right and wrong, he didn't know the specifics of it. And as it went on, it just kind of happened that way. And so, so the law came in, Paul says, because sin kept coming and because people kept sinning and God needed to show them what was right and what was wrong. He asked another question in verse 21. He says, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? You know, and this is a very good question. It's a very important question. Paul's answer is absolutely not. 
says, if the law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. So the promise of God, if we, if we remember, all right, is this blessing, right, to Abraham, this promise of salvation, this promise of life. And so if the law came because people were sinning, Paul comes to this second question of, so does the law oppose life? This promise that salvation was going to be given. And the answer is no, that even though the law does not give life, it still doesn't oppose it. That's kind of a hard line of reasoning, but it's important that we understand that. The law isn't opposed to God giving life but it is there to show what sin is. It's there to lock everyone under sin until faith can come. The world is and was ugly. I mean, we, we look at some of the things that happen in our world now, we're like, oh, that's, that's, I can't believe this is happening. But when we look in the ancient world, it was worse a lot of the time. Like it was one of those places where you didn't know if you were going to live the next day a lot of times. And the world was nasty and evil and, and, and people killed other people. One of the examples that I love is, is it from the time of Abraham. We're told that the kings there uh, one day just got together because, and, and they, they made a coalition, they went to war, and they went to war because... Everybody went to war in the spring, not because they wanted to, not because they had to, not because they were trying to expand their boundaries or anything like that, not because they, somebody had, had done something mean to them and so they wanted to go fight them. No, it was just expected that you would go to war. And we could tell you about all the different atrocities of some of the great nations that we read about in history, uh, and we just look and we shake our head and we wonder what was going on. The world was evil. And we, we see this in the world, and then we see the law come into play, and, and every one of the great nations uh, at some point in time came in contact with the law. They came in contact with God's people. The Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the all at one point in time conquered the Israelites, learned about the law, and while they didn't necessarily obey it, I mean, the Jews themselves, they didn't do a good job of it either. We can kind of read the Old Testament and kind of see that, okay? Uh, it still doesn't mean that the law wasn't doing its purpose. See, ultimately, the purpose of the law was to shut everything in sin, to let people know that there is a right way to do things and there is a wrong way to do them, and to recognize that, that for the most part, we all sin. We all are doing the wrong rather than choosing to do the right. And so the law's purpose was to do this, to lock everyone under sin until faith can come. 
And so then Paul goes from there, uh, from the purpose of the law to, to the rule. Why? How was it going to do this? How was it going to accomplish its purpose of, of shutting everyone up in sin? And we read that in verse 23. He says, before the coming of faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until faith, uh, the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The role that the law took in order to fulfill its purpose was that of a guardian or a custodian. And this was a very very real-world understanding illustration for Paul's people. The guardian, uh, this person was a very special class in Greek society. All right, this was a slave that was usually older, like they couldn't do the manual work that was required of slaves. And so they kind of retired them into this position. Uh, and their main job was to look after the uh, young men. Okay? Usually they got a young man at the age of seven, and they were there with him until about 20. All right? So during a very important period in their life, right? formulative going to kind of direct them for the rest of their lives, period, that this person was in charge of. And so it was a very important role. Uh, This guy would uh, walk the students or the young men uh, to and from school. He wasn't the teacher, but he kind of walked him out in public. If you wanted to go shopping, he was there. All right, when the young man got into uh, puberty, okay, uh, he was there to kind of beat back the suitors that would come up that were probably not appropriate for him. See, the, uh, uh, the Greeks thought that the youth uh, were kind of just did whatever they thought was good, right? All right? They followed their lust and their passions. And we kind of look at our youth today and we say, uh-huh, we agree with that usually. All right? And they just kind of did whatever they wanted to do. And so this guy's main primary job was to be a moral influence for the youth a moral compass. And so if he saw the youth do something that he shouldn't be doing, he kind of taught him, no, that's, that's not right. Even if it meant beating him into submission. And so this is the rule of the law. Right, this is the role that the law played in the lives of the Israelites. It was there as a moral compass, as a guide into the way that God wanted them to live. Right, it was this thing that, that kind of said, okay, if you do right, you're doing awesome. If you do wrong, here's sacrifices, here's punishments, here's all these things. And the law constantly beat down on the Israelites until Paul looks back after a thousand years of his history. And he sees that no matter how much the Jews tried to follow the law, it did not make them righteous. No matter what we think about making laws, it's not what's going to change people. It's not a matter of of having legislation in place because the Israelites had it for a thousand years and yet they didn't follow it. What matters is hearts. And if we want to change the world, we have to not worry about this. We need to worry about their hearts. 
And for thousands of years, the Israelites had tried to do this over and over again, and, and they just weren't able to do it. And, and Paul says that, that the laws, that was its purpose, that was its role, that was its job, to kind of show the importance and the realization that no matter how good we are, no matter how much we try to please God, we are never good enough. The role of the law was until faith came. See, the purpose of the law was to lock up everything until faith came under sin. The role of the law was to be a guardian, but the guardian is a temporary position. At some point in time, this youth that you've been training up from 7 until he's 20, he's going to turn 20. He's going to be a mature adult. And when that day comes, you're out of a job. You're no longer needed. And the same thing with the law. All right, the law was there until faith came, when maturity happens. And when that takes place, the law is no longer needed. And so the question that Paul asks is, why would Christians want to return to the law? Why would you want to continue to follow it when all it does is beat you down and tell you how awful of a person you are? In the Cold War, there, uh, the Eastern Bloc, uh, the communist countries, they had a hard line uh, on immigrants trying to leave their countries. Essentially, if you wanted to leave their country and no longer be a member of it, you couldn't. And so what we had happen as a result was people would come uh, to the free countries uh, and, and on normal business activities, um, maybe playing sports uh, or, or you were there there because of other uh, activities, and they would defect in those moments. And some of the famous people that did it were authors or KGB agents or sports uh, figures, uh, and they would come and they would say, you know what, I don't want to be there anymore because it's terrible. And there was a lot of atrocities going on in those countries at that time. And what happened when they came from those eastern countries into the west, into these free nations, is this. Is they stopped living as if they were in the, the communist countries. I, they, they, if they came from Russia to the U.S., they didn't live in the U.S. under the Russian laws. They lived under the U.S. law. And this is what we have to understand about Christianity, this old pattern of life, uh, whether it's under Judaism, whether it's under whatever it is that we did prior to coming to Christ. It was a different way of living, but now that we're in Christ, there's a new way of living, there's a new standard, and we shouldn't want to live as Christians under these old standards. It doesn't make sense. It's incompatible. We are called to live in this new standard, and this new standard is living by faith. Uh, Paul says it this way in verse 26. He says, uh, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. He says there is a new family, and the family that you're a part of, it's, it's because of Jesus Jesus has come. This faith that we were waiting for, it's Jesus. He says there's two ways that you get into the family. 
You're baptized and you're clothed into Christ. And then sometimes we, we read that and a lot of scholars, uh, even a couple of uh, Decades ago, they were wondering if Paul was talking about this because of baptismal practice um, in the ancient church. Uh, one of the things, and you'll be glad that we're not in the ancient church right now, okay? I was going to explain this. I, one of the things that they did is they would have you stripped down to get into the baptismal, okay, all the way. All right, you would uh, be uh, immersed, and then you would come up, and they would give you a robe. And so maybe what people thought that's what Paul was thinking, is that you get baptized, you come out, and then you're clothed, right, with a new robe that was white. All right, but we also know that that kind of, hap- while it is ancient, it happened after the apostles that people did this, probably because they read Galatians and were like, oh, this is a good way to do this, okay? Uh, aren't you glad we don't do it that way nowadays? All right, All right. We, you can be baptized in clothes, and it's okay, all right? Uh, and I, I'm not going to complain. All right, uh, and so, so that's not necessarily what it is, and so we have to ask this question, what is he talking about when he's saying being baptized and being clothed in Christ? And I think, I think they are connected. I think they are one and the same thing. All right, being baptized in Christ is important. It's the initiating factor into the family. All right, it's this uh, being united to Christ. Elsewhere in Paul's writings, he talks about uh, how baptism represents the Christ events, how the gospel is summarized in baptism, how uh, when you go into the water, you're representing dying to yourself, just like Jesus died on the cross, uh, and then Jesus was buried, and then he was raised to life. And in baptism, you're dying to yourself, and you're being buried under these waters, and you're raised to this new life. And I think that what Paul is talking about is that in this act of baptism, we are being united to Christ, and now the person that we are is really Jesus. Remember, at the end of chapter 2, Paul talks about how he is now crucified with Christ, and the life that I live is now lived by faith in the Son of God. I think Paul is talking about these same things when he's saying that, that when we are baptized, when we're initiated into this family, that we are a part of Jesus. And if we remember back to the beginning of this argument in chapter 3 where he's talking about Abraham is given this promise, and this promise was given for one person. And that one person was who again? It was Jesus. And now you as Christians, you are found yourselves to be in Christ, to be clothed in him. So that when people look at you, they no longer see Tony, they no longer see Roger, they no longer see Charles or whoever you are, they see Jesus. And this promise that was given to Jesus, it's ours because we are in him. This promise of salvation, it's given to Jesus, not to me individually. It's given to Jesus, and the question that we have is this. Are we in Christ or are we not? That's the only question that really matters. No other question matters. These labels that we often put ourselves in, kind of categorize ourselves by, they don't really matter. The only label that matters is, am I in Christ or am I out of Christ? 
And if we are trying to live over here as Christians, trying to be in Christ, but yet trying to live by these rules, we have to step out of him in order to live in these old way of living, these old standards that we have. And if we're stepping out of Christ to try to live by our own efforts, we will fail to realize that we will fail to be righteous before God. Because the only one that's righteous is Jesus. We are never going to be good enough. And so if we want to stand before God and and be right in his eyes, then we have to be hidden in Christ. The only way to get into heaven is by Jesus. And the only way to stay in the family is by Jesus. Paul Paul kind of ends this chapter by saying this in verse 29. He says uh, that if you belong in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according uh, to the promise. All right, so this, this being in Christ, that is what matters. I skipped a verse, but I want us to read it because I think it's important for us to understand who is able to do this. Because the Judaizers who were in Galatians, who were teaching them that they had to obey the law, the only people that really had to obey the laws were the ones who were able to get circumcised. So the men. So women, you're, you're just kind of, yeah, there's no hope for you. All right, and so that's kind of how they felt. And so uh, verse 28 is important in this argument when he says this, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. And what Paul says is it doesn't matter who you were born, you can be in Christ. What's represented here are, are two different things into one. There is an old Jewish prayer that takes place about the first century that says uh, this. Uh, a Jewish man would wake up in the morning and he would pray, Blessed be God that he did not make me a Gentile. Blessed be he that he did not make me a slave. Blessed be he that he did not make me a woman. Uh, Greek philosophers said this way. They said, uh, I am glad that I was born a human being and not a beast, next a man, and not a woman, and thirdly, a Greek, and not a barbarian. See, the, the ancient peoples, they had labels as well. All right? they, they put people into different categories, and whether or not you could come to God depended upon what category you fell in. The Jews did it. You would go to their temple mounts uh, where they built this temple that they could worship God. And depending on, on your label, depending on how close you could get to him. If you were a Gentile, uh, non-Jewish person, you had to stay outside. You weren't allowed to come eat very close. Next, the women were allowed to come a little bit closer if they were Jewish. And then the men just a little bit closer. And then ultimately the priests were the only ones that could actually be near the temple. There were segregations based on who you are and what label you had. But it doesn't matter in Christ. Paul says it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who you were born. What matters is do you have faith? And that faith is what gets you in Christ. And that faith is what gives you the promise that was given to Jesus. The promise that was promised to Abraham meant for Jesus is ours if we are found in him. 
And so no matter what labels we have in the back of our minds for ourselves, it doesn't, whatever we hear the world call us, those things no longer matter. What matters is our identity in Christ. And that alone should get us the strength to go forward into the day. The world may call us liars and thieves and, and, and loose and all these different things that are derogatory and meant to bring us down. But Jesus calls us his bride. He calls us redeemed. He calls us rescued. He calls us the people that he loved enough to die for. And if he loved us enough to come and to sacrifice himself in order to give us this promise of salvation, then these labels that other people use, they mean nothing. And as Christians, we need to not use those labels either. Sometimes we as Christians fail in this. Sometimes we label people whether or not they are worthy to hear the gospel. But the truth is it doesn't matter who they are because Jesus died for them as well. All right, we are meant to go and to change the world because we are in Christ and Jesus came to change the world, to save the world. And if he would meant to save the world, then that is our job now as followers of him, as people who should be looking like him, as people that when others look at us, they should mistaken Jesus for us. That is who we need to be. And we need to get past labels, past our own labels that we place on ourselves, past labels that we place on other people. And we need to seek Jesus and seek being found in him. Let's pray. Dear God, help us to be found in you. Help us, Father, to, to not worry about what others think of us, but to worry solely about what you think of us. Help us, God, to not worry about anything in our past, Help us not to try to live by the old standards that we used to live, but help us to live by faith in you. Thank you for the promise of Jesus. Thank you that we can be found in him alone. It's your name we pray. Amen.